Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 338. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 338 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated mastering and restoration engineer, audio preservationist, and educator, Jessica Thompson. Jessica originally appeared on WCA number 80 long ago, and I'm thrilled to have her back on the show to talk about backup strategies for audio, restoration, and some gear talk, as well as changes in her new studio that she is planning at her house. Yeah, very exciting. So, Jessica Thompson, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about digital clutter. I have been recording in a DAW now for well over 20 years. In fact, I think I bought my first Pro Tools rig around 97 or 98. In that time, I've accumulated the digital version of the physical cardboard box or boxes one ends up moving from house to house or apartment to apartment. These are the boxes that we forget what's inside, but for some reason we keep moving and moving those boxes with us and never going through them. Over time, the number of boxes of stuff can grow. In this case, the number of hard drives grows and copies of copies piles up. And in the digital world, hard drives can grow and the number of copies of files on those drives can grow. And as I move towards my minimalist goals in the physical world, I have begun to make progress in the digital world. I have shelves of hard drives of all shapes and sizes and generations. I'm attempting to consolidate everything inside my NAS. I could just copy it all over and pat myself on the back and say, okay, well, job well done. However, that is not going to solve my bigger issue of organization. So I go through each drive, file by file, and decide where those files will go. There's personal and business stuff. There's podcast-related, client-related, family-related, field recording-related. The idea is to treat the files like I would if they were physical, everything in its place. But that's not the end of it, though. I have to back it all up, of course, because I don't want a single point of failure. All of this can take time, time I could be using to hang out with my wife and kids, exploring the outdoors, or working with new clients, etc. So I take the time to come up with automated systems that once I put all this stuff into their respective folders, those folders then get replicated to other forms of backup, cloud backup, remote backup, without needing me to supervise. It's really crazy how much digital junk actually accumulates over time. And it has taken me adopting a completely new mindset of putting things where they belong to get a grip on the digital clutter. As a result, files are backed up. I know where things are. My desktop doesn't look like a teenager's bedroom. And I have peace of mind knowing that if we have a fire or other disaster, precious family photos and client files are retrievable elsewhere. I encourage you to develop your own way to declutter the digital madness that has become our lives. I think you might find a good digital practice will work its way into your physical world as well and yield positive results. 
I wish you luck in your journey, as it is quite a journey. But the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. In our case, it starts with going through the first hard drive and the first file. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Jessica Thompson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jessica, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. For the audience, Jessica originally appeared on episode number 80, as I'm sure I've already said in the uh, monologue at the beginning of the show. But she's back, and you are easily one of my favorite people to talk to. And the reason is, is because you work in this area that, Quite honestly, I just completely can geek out on, and it's it's a boring topic to some. It's fun to me, but 
it's a necessary evil, unfortunately, in our DAW-centric world that we live in. So we are going to get into all things backing up, archiving, workflow, all kinds of stuff, and maybe even making money as an archivist, as a mastering engineer, as all the things that Jessica does. So after that long-winded intro, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks for having me back on the show. Well, let's dive right in. And audience, Jessica did me a super solid here. She sent me this email with proposed topics. So I am far more prepared than I typically am for any interview. So let's talk about- <laughs> I like to do my homework. Yeah, you do. That's why you're in, in the business that you're in, because you're thorough. And I think that that's, that's super important. You got to focus on each task and make, make sure stuff is done right. So let's just dive right into it. Your first, and I know you said this is in no particular order, but I'm just going to go in order. So your first thing on this list was balance of audio engineering work and data management admin work from day to day, which is, as you say, boring, yet it's the truth. So talk about that from your perspective. I think I was thinking quite literally about a stack of papers in front of me and an overflowing inbox and these seven hard drives on the floor next to me that I pulled out of my closet over the weekend, dating back to the mid-2000s, 2005, I think is the earliest, and recognizing that even though I call myself a mastering engineer, half of my day is spent on administrative work, backing up files invoicing, doing research, organizing stuff, posting cool stuff on Instagram and Twitter, setting up sessions, downloading mixes, uploading masters, recording podcasts. But this stuff is such a crucial part of the work, so I don't mean to devalue it at all. On the contrary, I think it's as important to truly serving our clients and doing our jobs as audio engineers, as choosing EQs and tweaking knobs. We have to do the back end maintenance of our data in order to do our jobs. It's just that the the front face of being an audio engineer is me at the console, me working in my DAW, me pulling tapes up and putting them on the tape machine. And that's part of it. That's a super fun part of it. But it's also me building a spreadsheet, me digging through my closet, trying to find the right cable to hook up a 10-year-old hard drive. And I think for not just as a task for you when somebody hires you, but as a task for all of us. Let's say recently, okay, so I've been working on this Devo project where uh, it's, a, it's a tribute thing that, that I'm a player on, playing drums and mixing. At the end of the mixes, once I've sent it off, actually I sent it off to our, our mutual friend Kim Rosen to, to have Kim master it. I was like, okay, I need to stop what I'm doing and I need to take these Pro Tools sessions, clear out all the plugins that aren't in use, clear out all the audio that's not in use and pack it up and send it over to my little system of, of archiving, of sending it to three different locations. The process of doing that for one song can be, I don't know, 20 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes, because you want to be thorough. You want to make sure you're not getting rid of stuff that you need. You want to make sure that you're not accidentally choosing the wrong plugin when you're pulling something out. You know, there's all these grayed out plugins and sometimes you'll go to pick out a plugin that is actually in use. So that process on a per song basis, that time adds up for me. But I know, and you know, and I'm sure the audience knows, you should do it. It's just, it's a pain in the ass. Total pain, but it's part of the job. And it's always been part of the job. I think it's just more tedious now because it used to be 
let's document the session on the tape box. And if there was a backup, it was like, we'll run a safety copy, which I guess is real time. So that could have been pretty tedious too. But nowadays, I cringe at using this word, but those of us who are content creators, we have to have a way to organize and store our digital files or we're going to lose them. Yeah. My, my current system for working class audio was completely inspired by you and the little book that you gave me one time about organization of your files, put very simply. Well, thank you. It makes me happy to hear that, you know, that was useful to someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Once you develop the system, I think that's and, and the workflow, then it's like, well, okay, we this is how I do it. This is how I do it every time. And when you keep that consistency, that kind of an homage to the book Atomic Habits, when you adopt that atomic habit and keep it a regular part of your routine, then in you know a year from now, I've got all of it organized and it's it's not chaos. And that's, I think, the stress of it all is, as you talk about going through hard drives, and I've got my own set here that I've been going through, I go through and I see nothing but chaos. Sessions named ridiculous things, joking names for almost final bleep, bleep, bleep mixes here, you <laughs> totally. know, stuff like that. So, Well, the reason my hard drives are out right now is because I had to find a project I mastered almost 15 years ago. The artist texted me and was like, hey, do you still have that? Because the producer can't find his copy. And I had it on a DVD, not thrilled that that was my only backup, but I was able to recover it and it lit a spark and made me think, all right, I have projects from very early in my career on DVD that I should probably back up. I should have backed up years ago. But I think it's important to note that no one taught me how to do this early in my career. Like, I learned how to use a DAW. I learned what an EQ does and what a compressor does. But no one was like, hey, file management, let's talk about that. And not in school or on the job. So it took a long time for me to recognize the importance of this, but also find the resources to figure out how to set up a system. So that's a little bit of my goal now in teaching or in doing something like this is like, hey, you don't have to do this at like Library of Congress standards. You just have to set up something that works for you and is consistent. That's true. That's true. We don't have to get absolutely insane about it. But if there's a method to the madness that the average person could open up and understand, I know it's morbid, but I always talk about, you know, when I'm not here at some point in the future, I don't want people to open up hard drives and go, what the hell was he thinking here? Where is all this stuff? I want them to open it up and go, oh, it's right here. Everything we need is mm -hmm. right here. He laid it out perfectly, kind of a yeah, thing. Yeah, well, you know, hot tip. I have a set of nested folders that I use as a template for every single project. Whether it's a single, like a total one-off single or a huge archival project, every project gets this series of nested folders. And then I have a holding spot for all the stuff and it's always labeled the same. And that was like, you know, it took me, what, 10 years to figure out that that's the way to do it. But now I do it for every project and I always know where the mixes are and I always know where the masters are. So back to your DVD find that you had to get this project off of, can you explain to the audience why that's kind of a precarious situation, having files on DVDs or CDRs? Well, first of all, no one's computer has a CDR DVD drive anymore. I have one. It's old. 
I'm grateful that it still works, but it's not going to work forever. Those DVDs might hold up. They might be readable and they might not. You know, mine were stored nicely. They were not used as coasters, so I could read the data off of it. But those ones and zeros, you have to pull them all off to get the audio. And there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get that data off that disc. And since that was my only backup, if that DVD had not been able to be read by my DVD drive, you know, so much for that project. All right, let me throw this at you. So I have probably, let's just say I have a box full of magnetic tape-based backup. So we're talking AIT tapes. We're talking DDS4. I'm kind of at a loss of how to restore those because those were all done with retrospect software, which is still around, but it's really unclear to me how to recall that information. I've got the original retrospect files and I've got the tapes. I just don't have the drives. I have an AIT drive, that's true. But it seems like the systems that all of that was created with are long since gone. Yeah. And even when those drives do exist, when they break, who can fix them? So it's a real problem in our industry. And for that, I have to give a hat tip to Jason Bittner, who initiated this series at the Audio Engineering Society's annual conference in New York called Archiving the 90s. So we did two years a row in a row of that one. And this year we're doing Archiving the 90s, 80s edition, where we look at those early digital formats and the challenges of reformatting that. In the 80s, I would assume that you've got a combination of primarily analog recordings, but you've probably got analog recordings that have some type of uh, MIDI synchronization going on with other devices, possibly, that were tied to MIDI sequencers or things on possibly on floppy drives. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the stuff on optical disks or anything on those early digital formats, especially the ones that were kind of in the prosumer zone, mm -hmm. you know, like... You'd find them in the smaller studios. I'm thinking, I don't know, like ADATs and DA88s and things like that. Those are becoming more and more challenging to play back. And a lot of times when you try to play back those formats, like it's kind of an all or nothing. Like I, I was telling someone the other day with, with DATs, you hit play and pray. <laughs> and it plays back or it doesn't. And when it doesn't, what do you do? You try a different machine. And timely that you said that because my old Panasonic 3700 sitting here that I bought new in 94, maybe, I tried to put a data in the other day. And for the first time in its entire life, it didn't work. And I oh. thought, oh, man, I still have a huge box full of dats that I've yet to get to. And my mind started racing. Where am I going to go? In the old days in the Bay Area, you'd go to Studio Maintenance Center and drop your machine off and they'd fix it. Nowadays, I'm like, okay, in the Bay Area, it's Rance, Mannion, maybe, hopefully. Yeah. Unless you know somebody. Well, this is another pet project of mine. And I'm, I'm working on this project with the Association for Recorded Sound Collections Technical Committee, of which I'm a member, and trying to find ways to connect really knowledgeable techs with people who are interested in learning about that world so we can get a mentor-mentee thing going. 
and pass along this information and this deep, deep institutional knowledge of how to repair these machines. Because you're right, like if my dat breaks, it's, I, I'm not going to open it up. I know some people who can and would, but I'm not a tech and I, I'm just stuck. I have to pay someone or ship it somewhere. Eddie Saletti. I think I'm saying his name right. Eddie's been around for years. I think he's in the Midwest somewhere. I think that- I think he's in Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, and he's awesome and he's so kind and he will always answer a call or an email and offer advice. But, you know, you can't have one guy repairing all the dats <laughs> I in, know. in our country. <laughs> and also, you know, one of the problems is it's not a super profitable gig because it takes a long time to repair these things. And it's hard to source the parts. So what's your return on investment for fixing a, a DAT? Right. You know, how much are we going to pay for that repair? With gratitude, but still. Unfortunately, for some people, some of the only masters for some records might only exist on a DAT or an ADAT or a DA88, talking about you know the 90s in particular, when the modular digital multitracks were flourishing everywhere. And I did see recently, didn't you just acquire some ADATs or DA88s? I did. Michael Romanowski at Coast dropped oh. off some machines that he was no longer using. And I'll be honest, they are currently in my closet because I don't have any of those formats in-house right now. But should I need those machines, I have them and they work. Well, I was speculating the other day. I was in my head going through my usual routine of what can I get rid of to clean house? And I saw my mini disc player over here. And I thought, I'm going to just finish transferring all these mini discs. And I thought, I should just give that machine to Jessica because- I'll take it. You'll take it. Yeah, great. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> I can get rid of it. I can know that there is a place to get mini discs transferred should that need to happen. Yes. Well, let's, let's talk about the next thing on your list, developing backup file strategies and then maintaining them. We've kind of touched on it a bit, but- What's your advice to the audience, like as we discussed earlier, whether they're pros or students or anybody in between, what's what's the best plan? You know, I think it's kind of like building an exercise regimen. You just have to do it all the time and you can't skip your workouts. So I have it built into my workflow, but even I have those moments where things start to pile up and then I literally put it in my calendar. Friday, 3 to 5 p.m., backup and organization. And that way it becomes a task that you need to complete and you set aside the time for it. I think the real challenge is this stuff can be so daunting, especially if you're staring in the face of 10 or 15 years of recorded material that you maybe didn't organize that well. So the attitudes around archiving, especially sometimes coming from the library world, can be so preachy and self-righteous that it can be a real turnoff and a hurdle that becomes very easy to ignore. I also recognize that not everyone has the same love of spreadsheets that <laughs> you and I might have. <laughs> and certainly not everyone has the time or the budget or even the inclination to back up their work to Library of Congress standards. So, you know, I think it's really important to shift lenses here. What is good enough for you and for the kind of work that you do? So instead of setting the bar so impossibly high, Maybe you just uh, have a simple inventory of what you've got. Instead of like perfectly maintained folder hierarchies and backup strategies, maybe you just recognize that you always save your final mixes on a local hard drive and in the cloud and the folders always labeled final mixes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes good enough is good enough. 
That's right. Don't try to be so perfect that you don't do it. Yes. How has your workflow changed over COVID? The challenges, the benefits, because you're working out of your home like I am, like many of us are, and you've got two yeah, kids. I do. 2020 really threw us some curveballs, eh? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so prior to COVID, I was sharing a studio with the very awesome Piper Payne, who's been on your show twice. And when COVID hit, you remember there was that moment where we were like, oh, we just got to hunker down. This will all be over in a few weeks and things will be back to normal. Well, <laughs> suffice to say, I set up at home and have been working there ever since. And it works. It's not ideal, but there have been a lot of plus sides to it. I did spend a lot of money on acoustic treatment and bought really expensive, adjustable sound anchors, speaker stands, so I could really dial in my listening position. But beyond that, the plus size, I have total flexibility over my schedule. Sometimes I get up and do work early in the morning, and then I make my kids breakfast and take them to school or, during the past year, hook them up to their Zoom school. But I can work on a record for a while and then go put in a load of laundry and then go back to the record. So in some ways, life has become incredibly flexible. And I really appreciate that as a parent. The work-life balance can be great. Uh, the downside, well, for the past year, my kids were home 24-7. And you're a parent. You know this. You know how devastating that was for families and for our kids' mental health. And for us, like I had a really hard time focusing. I felt like I was distracted for an entire year. But I also learned from that how to single task rather than multitask and how to block off time to get into a deep state of flow with my work and then step out of it and deal with the home stuff. So that was a good lesson. And I feel like I've really come out of it in a super healthy place with my work and my home life. I think you may have had a harder time because your kids are younger than mine. I'm essentially dealing with teenagers and there's a certain amount of autopilot I can go on and just say, okay, go to school, go to your room. But yeah. you know, still you you still have to stop and, and go out and engage and have lunch and chat with your kids. Yeah. And then there's times when, you know, you're trying to focus on a, a deadline or a project and they need your help, like whether it's technical help or school help or whatever. And you just have to budget your time for that. That's that's been a challenge. I'm sure for both of us. Budgeting time. A lot of my, I would say my self-care was sacrificed to keep up with work and family obligations. And I say this with just nothing but gratitude for my husband, who really was able to take over a lot of the childcare stuff when I would have intense projects that needed my attention. Yeah. I, I don't know how single parents do it, honestly especially during COVID, trying to do your audio work and handle your kids. And oh my gosh. Well, you know, it was bleak. I'm not going to lie. It was a very dark year. Yeah. But again, and I, I'm not looking for silver linings here, but I got to work on some really, really amazing projects, like deeply moving music. And that saved me a lot of the time, the ability to go into the studio and shut the door and immerse myself in these recordings that were just so brilliant and that I'd never heard before. You know that feeling when you pull up a record to start working on it and you're like, 
I have never heard this before, and it's so good. And in some cases, I'm sure in your work, you're hearing stuff that very few people have heard. Yeah. Because you're unearthing I things from, from archives that, that haven't seen the light of day. Yeah, so true. It's really the great joy of doing this kind of work. I'm not the crate digger. Someone else did the crate digging part of this. Mm -hmm. But to be sent those tapes and hit play and hear just this, this brilliance that was captured 20, 30, 40 years ago mm -hmm. that no one else has heard for so long. And then to be able to play a part in restoring that music and sharing it with the world. That's, you know, it keeps me going. In this time of COVID, you, you got to work on a bunch of cool stuff because that's when people started to go, well, okay, we, we can't go tour. Let's, let's go dig through the archives and see what we can release. So you and others like you who do this kind of work, I'm sure saw a huge influx of projects. Yeah, I honestly, last year was my busiest year ever. I worked on a lot of those projects that I think had been on the shelf waiting for their moment. But you're right. When people were stuck at home and unable to tour or go record in studios, I think a lot of them started to reflect on their past and dig out some of those historic recordings and think, you know what, I should really have this stuff digitized. Maybe I need to, to reissue this. So I, I worked on a lot of projects that I think came out of that self-reflection and imposed exile. That sounds a little dramatic. Maybe not <laughs> exile. <laughs> no, but it sounds good. So let's talk about the future here, the home studio. You've been talking about making modifications to your house to have a home studio built for quite some time. And you told me yesterday you finally have pushed that project forward. Yeah, that's so scary, but it's true. And oh man, if you could hear the like two years of should we stay or should we go conversations between me and my husband, it took a long time for us to make this decision. And largely because we have kids and our kids are in local schools and we felt like it was worth it to our family to let them stay in those schools with those friends. So this is the Bay Area. The real estate market here is completely bonkers. There is no way we could sell our home and just buy a different one. That doesn't work here. It's not how real estate transactions go in the Bay Area. So what it really came down to was, do we want to move much farther out of the Bay Area and get more space where I can build a studio? Or do we want to stay put and modify our home that we own. Ultimately, we decided for so many reasons that we would think of it as an investment, in investing in our property. Because someday when we move, my beautiful studio that I'm going to build is going to be marketed as a super sweet media room or a spacious fourth bedroom. But it's also an investment in my business. And I think the growth of my business over the past few years has really helped me understand that this is a long-term plan. And I know it sounds weird to say that because I have, I've been doing this work independently for a long time, but it took a while for me to reach the point where I was like, yes, you run a business, you are a fully independent, successful mastering engineer, build the studio, invest in the studio. Mm-hmm. So that's coming down the pike. And of course, the timeline in the Bay Area is excruciatingly slow. But 
the baby steps. We took the first steps and fingers crossed within a year or a year and a half, I will have a purpose-built mastering room that will be part of my home. And uh, I can't wait for it. I bet. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Well, and it's it's not an easy process because number one, you have to go through all those early conversations. Then you have to meet with designers or architects and choose one. You pay a crap ton of money for some plans. I mean, it's not unheard of to pay five to $10,000 or $15,000 for a set of drawings and plans to do this. And then there's the contractors and then the wait for the contractors. You know, of course, you've got to find the right contractor. And that's, I've had some bad luck with contractors in the past. And then, um, like I said, there's the wait. And some people, they've got so much work that they're like not in a hurry to come and deal with you. Yeah, it's it's true. But the alternative is renting a space and rents are expensive uh-huh. and it would put me outside of the home. And for me, I looked at that and I was like, well, I can just keep paying that much money every month to rent a space. And then what happens when my kid is sick and I have to go pick him up from school or there's a holiday and my kids are out of school or someone needs to go to karate and someone needs to go to chess. And even though I have a partner who is doing far more than his fair share of caring for our children, it just seemed untenable and financially unwise to work outside of the home. And uh, I'm really filled with gratitude today, but it's sincere. We own our home and I'm so grateful for that. But the idea of renting for the next 20 or 30 years just felt financially unfeasible especially given how much money we make for the work that we do and how much money we have to put into our own businesses just to be able to do this work efficiently and up to my own standards. I mean, I spend a lot of money on gear every year. And every year I'm like, I've got it. I've got everything I need. (laughs) And then the next year rolls around and I'm dropping more money on on more stuff. Well, you know, the thing is, And I mean, I know you know this, so I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm just spewing this out just for the audience's sake. But it's like, you get to a point where you've been at it several years and then you start to hear differences in pieces of gear, your workflow matures, the way you do your job in in total changes and you start to identify more efficient ways of doing it. And sometimes that costs money to create that efficiency. So if you, as you said in, in this list you sent me, you know, spending money to make money. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Talking about the tools that you've purchased over the year, you got some really cool stuff. I know that you bought John Cunaberti's ATR tape machine for doing transfers of generally quarter inch, half inch stuff. Tell me about that because I know that that was a huge, first of all, it was a chunk of money. It was. But it was a fa- I thought it was a fair price, but in retrospect, more than fair. Oh yeah. And I'm so grateful to John for selling me his beautiful tape machine because it was in fantastic condition and it had been refurbished by Mike Spitz. So really I got a gem of a machine. Right. But I think that's something that people don't always understand about archival work. The playback machines are so expensive. And I know this because I had been looking for a second tape machine because I wanted to be able to play back quarter track tapes. I wanted a 104. And you look on eBay or Reverb, I mean, you're hitting five figures with those tape machines now. Yeah. But you can't play back a tape without a good tape machine. So what are you going to do? You have to spend the money. And because I have very high standards for myself, I believe in buying high quality, well-maintained machines and then continuing to put in the work. And within the first year of owning that machine, I had to do another five or $600 of standard maintenance repairs on it. Mm-hmm. Totally fine, but that's part of the game, right? And then this past year, when I realized that buying a four-track was probably not in the cards, I went to Greg Orton at Flux Magnetics and had him custom make me a new head stack with quarter-track stereo, half-track stereo, and full-track mono heads. So there are no record heads. It's all playback heads. And now I can play back those quarter-track stereo tapes that I get. Totally wise investment, but still spending money to make money. Absolutely. Because if you are one of the few people who can play back those formats, you kind of have the market cornered in a way because people want to restore stuff. And there's only so many people in not only the world, but you know, just specifically in the United States who can play back that stuff in a quality way and do a particular level of work. And you're one of those people. So seems like a great investment. And like I've mentioned to people before, you know, tape machines, they're like boats. You can't just buy a boat and let it sit in the water and not maintain it. You got to put some time and money into it to make sure that it stays up to snuff, right? I like the boats metaphor. I usually go with the classic car. Mm. I think of this as, you know, like a nice 60s Porsche. Mm -hmm. I like the 911s. I know some people like the 912s. (laughs) whatever model. But it's true. You have to maintain it. And I got 
of love that about it. I love listening to it and hearing the way it works. Those little cues that tell you, uh, maybe something's not right. Or, you know, you can always tell when to hit stop because the tape's almost done unwinding. If you're like rewinding or fast forwarding a tape, it's like you can hear the frequency it gets to when it's almost done unspooling. <laughs> I love that stuff about the machines. Well, so you've also spent some money on plugins and the Zynaptic Unfilter, Unveil, and Chirp. I got to be honest with you, I might need some help because while I use Unfilter actually on this show from time to time, Unchirp, I haven't been able to figure that one out. Like every time I use it, I'm like, what, what, what's going on here? What, why does that sound worse? So yeah, we, we can a have a side one. conversation on our own about that, but those are great tools. Love them. I love, especially Unfilter. I really feel like that's machine learning done right. AI-based plugins, man, I tell you, really just coming around. Incrementally, I use them very, very lightly. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty remarkable what Unfilter can do, especially if you've got a recording that has frequency limitations because of the format it was recorded onto, or for whatever reason. If you're missing content, you can like just give this wonderful hint of what might have been there with Unfilter. I'll put a link to that in the show notes because that's that's been useful for me. What is this Better Maker thing you bought? Oh, that one's very cool. So it kind of goes way back, right? Like the first studio I worked at had a pair of Pultec EQP ones. And I might say that was the first piece of gear that I was like, ooh, that's magical. So the Better Maker EQ that I got is a Pultec emulator. They make amazing hardware, but not in the budget for me this year. But the Better Maker plugin has this wonderful way of giving you that airiness and that lift in the high end without the harshness or sibilance that you might get if you were just doing like a shelf on the high end. It's the only way I can describe it. I just think it's a really elegant way to infuse a mix with that soaring quality. Hmm. The Weiss mastering stuff, that's so funny you put that in your list because that simple de-esser that they make, just the one that just says de-esser, I know that there's several- Total knockout, right? Oh my Total God. Total knockout. Best de-esser I've ever used. Yep. S absolutely stunning. I use it on this show all the time. I use it in all my mixes. It's, it's constantly there. I used to go to the, um, and I'm kind of, I know audience, I'm going down a gear rabbit hole and I'll try to minimize it because I know that that's not my style, but- I used to go to the Massey one, you know, and I love Steve. Steve's great, makes a great DSer, but this Weiss DSer just blows my mind how great it is. I agree. I agree. Now, turntables, obviously, you in some cases are restoring the only recordings that exist are coming off of vinyl or variations of vinyl. I don't know what the other things are that are out there, acetates or whatever. Things that people Grooved would pull media. out of someone's basement. <laughs> yeah. Your turntable setup, is that like super tweaky? It is. It's not super hi-fi. Like if you ever enter the hi-fi turntable world, you know that rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Then suddenly you're talking about like $10,000 tone arms. That is not my game. <laughs> I have a solid workhorse of a machine. I have a Technics 1200 and I got it modified at KAB in New Jersey back when I lived in New York. And, so, you know, so I, I had a bunch of upgrades done to it. I had the power supply moved externally. I rewired the tone arm, just some basic stuff. I got it modified so I could play 78s as well. But I noticed over the past year, 
that my very good stylist, I knew that we were entering that zone where it was time to replace it. Had it a few years. It had done the rounds. So I thought, all right, I'm going to buy another stylus. And again, you know this world. You can spend a year's tuition on a stylus. And that was not my intent, not what I was going to do. But I did shell out for the Ortofon 2M Black. And of course, as you do, digitized a record with my old stylus, had a Dynavector, and then digitized the same record with the Ortofon. And I just wanted to cry and go back and redo every record I'd done over the past two or three years because it is just stunning. The clarity is unparalleled. And it's an expensive stylus, but it's not like a crazy hi-fi stylus. I just was so happy with what I was able to capture off a record. And it made my job so much easier because then I'd go to to de-click things or restore the recording and it already sounded so clean. So very, very happy with that purchase. What does something like that cost, the Ortofon? Oh my God, I can't remember. I was like probably around $1,000. Oh my God. <laughs> that you're going to say two or $300, but oh. a thousand bucks. Wow. Okay. No, you know, but that that's, ah, oh, it just, it pains me, but you know, you spend money to make money. It sounds really good. And the, the one I had, the Dynavector I had, I think was maybe like $750. So again, like I had been really happy with that one. I think it just said, it was a, a, like a middle-aged stylus. It needed, <laughs> it's, it's gotten retired to the living room. Now it's our listening for pleasure stylus. All right, one more gear thing, and I'm going to let this go because I know that this is highly unusual that I would even talk about this much gear stuff, audience. I know, I'm like, this is like so WCA taboo, but here I go. <laughs> So uh, I We turned, can go back to spreadsheets if you want. Oh to. yeah, we can definitely go back to spreadsheets. So the Odyssey headphones, I turned you on to the LCDXs because I had a pair and I lent those to you and you you dug them. And at first you were like, oh, I don't know about these and they're too heavy and this and that. And I was like, just hold on to them. And you did. And now you own your own pair. I could not let those go. I, you're right. They're They're heavy. They're substantial. Yeah. And that was my concern because sometimes when I'm doing deep restoration work, I have to sit under the headphones for like hours. And I thought, oh, there's no way I can do that. They're so heavy, especially when you have glasses. You know, that's always a pain with headphones, right? Yeah. I could not let those go. I bought them. I use them every day. I love them. I could not work without them, especially when I moved the studio into my home. I could not have confidently mastered all those records during the past year without having the Odyssey headphones as a way to check my work. Yeah. You know, and I'm still sticking to my guns here with the clothes back. I think I'm doing some of the best mixes I've ever done using these because, you know, with four people home working at once and, you know, my wife's on her like conference calls, you can't really like turn it up and, and do your thing and tweak as we do over and over and over and over again on the same passage. So working on headphones has just become like second nature to me to a point where I do it anyway, even if people aren't even home, I'll, I'll do it, which is bizarre. Yeah, no, I totally get that. It's a, it's one of the ways that our workflows have changed from when we all worked in big studios all the time to working in a home studio. So let me throw a curveball your way. Now, I'm in fairly regular touch with Steve Genowick at Capital, 
And I know Steve has been mixing a ton of Atmos stuff. And I talked to Andrew Sheps the other day, and he's set up a complete Atmos thing, Dolby approved and all at his place. Well, and Romanowski, of course, his mastering setup is geared for Atmos. So this is going to create a whole new set of potential work for you in the future. So is that something that you would have to prepare for? Oh, you did throw me a curveball. I thought you were going to let me talk about how much I love working in mono, (laughs) (laughs) which is true. I do. I mean, I know that restoration is for right now is most of it emanates from what's happened in the past 50 to 100 years. But we have these future formats that are currently being used, and it seems like it's going to come around. Yeah. And for sure, we are going to develop ways of preserving those I think independent of all of the specifics of the codecs that are used to deploy them. Like, I think that's one of the challenges with multi-channel work right now. Like, how many channels? What's the fold down? Do you save it as a stereo file and a multi-channel file? And if so, what's the format of the file? Is it Dolby Atmos or, uh, you know, I don't really know. I know that there's work being done on developing archiving strategies for that, but It's not something I'm super involved in, and I'm going to sound like a Luddite right now, but I'm like, oh, I kind of want to just leave that to someone else and stay in my lane. Yeah. But one of the things I always say about my work is, you know, there always will have been music. So there's always more for me to digitize and restore. And not to throw you something that you're not interested in, but I mean, I could easily see you getting hired as a consultant to... Universal Music Group or somebody like that to oversee the standards in which they use to archive this stuff that they're working on. That's kind of you to say. And maybe, but I also really appreciate this niche I've carved out for myself where I try to seek out and serve clients that would otherwise fall through the cracks. Yeah. So most of the people I work with, their material is not headed toward the Library of Congress or a major university archive. Some of it is for sure. But, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, they just want to preserve it for themselves and their fans and their families and their small label or small venue. And they would slip through the cracks otherwise because they don't have the resources to hire a professional full-time archivist the way the Neil Young estate does, right? Right. Like Neil Young has done such amazing things with his archival material or the Prince estate. Phenomenal work, right? But think of all the amazing artists that don't have the budget to hire a full-time staff to work on their archival material. I'm trying to find a way for them to do it good enough. Get stuff digitized, get it organized, maybe curate a really awesome reissue project out of it. But most importantly, just get over that first hurdle. Yeah. So how do you base your charges for people? I mean, If you're dealing with the Prince estate or the Neil Young estate, that's one thing. But if you're dealing with the musician down the street, there's a lot of musicians in the Bay Area who might be kind of popular in the Bay Area, but not known outside. And they might have 20, 30, 40 years of material, but they may not have the same budget. So how do you address that? That's that's really tough because this stuff takes time. It takes an investment in the gear and it takes a very particular skill set. So I try to value my skills and my time when I am budgeting for a project. 
But I also maintain flexibility because I don't want to close the door on a project just because they can't pay top rates. So sometimes that means scaling back. Maybe instead of doing all 40 tapes, we're going to start with a batch of 10. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means encouraging people to seek grant funding. That could be tricky as an individual, but a lot of small labels or organizations or venues I've worked with have received grant funding that essentially that pays me to do my job. So trying to be a connector in that way. And then the idea of monetizing archival content is sometimes verboten in the archiving world, but it shouldn't be because that stuff is valuable. And I think when it's properly preserved and restored and remastered and contextualized, and you can include things like really amazing photographs and stories that becomes a really valuable artifact that people will pay money for. Well, we're almost out of time. As I mentioned on the phone call yesterday, I'm going to throw something out to you. I'm going to run my uh, setup by you of what I'm doing with my data. And I would welcome you to poke holes into it or make suggestions on what I could do to improve it. So are you ready? Yeah, lay it on me. All right. So here it comes. All right. So I'm working on a MacBook Pro, 2017 MacBook Pro, and I've got some solid state hard drives attached to that. I work off those drives. Those drives are just day-to-day backed up to a simple Backblaze account. When I'm done with a project, let's just say it's a mix or even a podcast. First, it will, it'll go over to my Synology NAS over here to my right. That Synology NAS, depending on whether it's client-based or my own personal projects, will back up to either Dropbox or a Backblaze account. And then in addition to that, that's all the same projects that I just mentioned that go over there also go to just a standalone Drobo in my house, in the other room, hooked up to ethernet. And I just drag stuff over there. It's just basically like an independent thing. It's not talking to any cloud services like the Synology, but basically I've got stuff in two physical locations at home and one remote location. What could I do to improve that? What are the faults in that? Feel free, poke holes, tell me I'm, I'm just really screwing it up. Solid A for archiving, Matt. That's a great strategy. I think the one hole I would poke in it is that if you really wanted to think catastrophically, your second hard drive should be farther offsite. Mm. Like, for example, I have a hard drive at my in-law's house. The problem with that is that it doesn't get backed up as frequently as my on-site hard drives. So all in all, you've got a really solid strategy. And I think that's a good line of thought for most people to follow. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I've often thought, where could I put another machine? And here's something, and you don't have to agree to this, but I'll throw this out as a possibility. And just so people know that this is doable. I'm a huge fan of the Synology thing. As a matter of fact, I'm such a fan. I try to get them to sponsor the show, but they couldn't get it together to give me an answer. But that said, it's a great box, does a lot of stuff. So one thing that it does do is if you buy a second Synology drive or NAS, you can store it in some other location. And there's a particular software that they have built in called, I think it's called Hyper Backup. It will go out and find your other Synology in somebody else's house. And it will make a direct connection to that. And it will continually give you an offsite backup. So when I was talking with Andrew Sheps about this, because initially I was going to buy a Synology that he was selling 
because he didn't need any anymore. But he's in England and he was keeping a Synology in Los Angeles that he was also backing up to as a complete offsite thing. And long story short, I didn't I didn't end up buying it and I've referred him to someone else to buy it. But that said, one consideration is is like for you and I, I could keep a Synology at your house, you could keep a Synology at my house as a catastrophic backup scenario. So audience, if you're thinking about something like that, that's also a possibility. I like that idea because it, it gives you a built-in backup buddy so you can keep each other on task, right? Right. Hey, buddy, did you do your backup this week? Exactly. Right. Well, and you know, you don't have access to it necessarily, but it's there and it is consuming power and internet resources. So in the case of something like a large archive, like I've got, I would need to do all the initial backup here, the seeded backup, I think it's called, and then send it over. And then all the little incremental things happen. So it doesn't like completely destroy the bandwidth of one's internet. So that's a consideration. There's no pressure to do that, but I just, I'm throwing that out to you as an idea. And if you're up for it, I, I could be up for it. I'd buy another one of these things just to do that. <laughs> I think it's a very cool idea. I like the idea of backup buddies. Do you think, as I stare at all these hard drives, it's funny, like, and I said, we're out of time, but here is a final question towards you. It's kind of a, maybe an ethical question. I've got all this stuff from all these artists and I mean, some of this stuff goes back 20 years and I've just, I think I've felt a sense of responsibility to hold on to it because in some cases, 10 years after the fact, I've had people show up and say, Hey, do you remember that project? Do you still have that? What do you feel about the ethical questions of that? When, when you do a project for somebody, do you hold on to it forever? Ah, oh, that's so tricky because yes, I hold on to it forever and yes, I have clients from 5, 10, 15 years ago call me up and say, hey, do you have that project? I lost it. Whose responsibility is it to take care of the masters? Because technically, it's not mine. I work for hire. Someone pays me to master their record. I master it. I send it back to them. And it's the artist's or the label's responsibility from that point on. But I don't know any mastering engineer who doesn't keep all of their masters carefully backed up. And probably many of them do have some legal contract around that. I think most of the smaller independent mastering engineers don't, but it's a dangerous game. I keep everything and no one has ever had a problem with that, especially not the clients who lose their masters and have to reach out to me to restore them. Hmm. But I'll throw you one side story to wrap things up that's a different perspective. Because I also teach, and most of my students are in their early 20s, and even though I absolutely drill into them the importance of labeling files correctly and backing everything up, every semester, at least one student loses their project. And they don't seem to care. They don't care. They're like, oh man, I lost my project. Oh well, guess I'll redo it. And I don't know if that's because they don't value their own work, or there is just this mindset of accepting that digital audio is ultimately ephemeral. I don't know, but I think it's something to think about. Do you think that's generational? Perhaps. Hmm. We come from an era of tape. And so, I, I don't know, maybe it's in our DNA that we just think that, oh, well, you got to save the tape. Of course. And of course, you, in your side of the business that, that you're working in, it's built into you. So the idea of somebody not caring about something, it seems like blasphemous, you know? It's like, really? 
It seems like it, but then there's this little hint that maybe we don't need to save everything. That's true. And, you know, I've come across stuff. I've opened up Pro Tools sessions on some of these drives. And I'm like, who is this? I can't even figure this out. Is this my client? Is this someone else's client that passed through a studio I was running? And I feel like so obligated that I just create a folder called Mystery Orphan Sessions. And I just dump it in there and I'm like, okay, well, maybe somebody's going to come looking for this. And if they do, I'll just go through this little folder and I'll figure out if this is them. And That's some, a great I could make solution. somebody really happy someday by the fact that I kept it. It's 21st century crate digging. It's, it is. It is. It's a, it's a constant work in progress, though. And eventually, I've got this little shelf over here that I keep referring to with the Synology Someday, I'm going to just have it be the single black box and none of these extra hard drives sitting around. I can't wait for that day. What do you do with old hard drives? I keep them, but I back them up every, like when I can sense that a hard drive is entering that danger zone. Mm -hmm. You know, I already have a backup. I already have like two of them, right? So then I'll back up onto a third newer one, but I keep the old two. And now I'm at the point where I have some, I have some hard drives where I probably have like five or six copies of the content on newer hard drives. Mm -hmm. And I just keep the hard drives on the shelf. Interesting. Periodically dust them off and spin them up. Because like I've got some old glyph and the ones that came in the silver box starts with an L. Can't think of the name. The Lassies. Lassie. There we go. Got a ton of those. Belongs to clients. I'm going to make sure that everything's backed up here. And I may just like start randomly mailing things to clients and go, hey, I've got this backed up. I don't need this. Put this in your your library. I think what you're saying is put this in your closet. Yeah, put this in your closet. Let it, let it gather dust. Well, I know we've done it before, but where can people find out more about you? JessicaThompsonAudio.com or my social media handles tend to be J-A Thompson, like Thompson minus the N. That's what happens when you have a really common name. Okay. So J-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O on Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. Links will be in the show notes audience. And I may even include some links to what we've talked about today. Some of the gear that we talked about, which is highly unusual, but I felt it was important. God, Jessica, thanks so much for coming back. And audience, if you haven't heard episode 80 that Jessica and I did, actually, we did that one in person. You came over. Yeah. A long time ago. So. It was. Yeah. If you want the full picture, listen to that. Maybe we've repeated some content, but always a good conversation that I have with you, Jessica. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for inviting me back. I just love the work you're doing with this podcast. So really honored to be a second time guest. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on and uh, we'll chat with you later. Bye, Matt. See ya. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. 
Jessica Thompson here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, and if you do like the show, my ask of you, very simple, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. You can click the five-star rating or you can write a nice poem or a novel or, you know, your biography, whatever it is. But either way, it helps the show out and I really would appreciate it. But that's all for me today. So want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Paul on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, as usual, with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.